Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. If you have your Bible here today, would you mind joining me in Matthew 5? And we'll be looking today at just one verse, the first of the Beatitudes today, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. And as you're turning over there, I have a bit of a confession to make to you. Now they say that confession is the first step to the road to recovery, right? So I have a confession. And for those of you who know me, this is not going to be any bit of a surprise. But for those of you who don't, well, you're going to learn something new about me. I love all things Apple. I love iPhones. I love Apple computers. I love iWatches. I've got one on today. I love everything Apple. Some say it's a problem. Some say that I, you know, if, when Apple finally comes out with an Apple car, I'll probably figure out some way to buy it. I don't know how. It'll drive itself, and I'll sit in the back. I've got this whole scheme dreamed up in my mind. It, it may be a problem. I don't know if it's a problem or not. Some people may say that it's a problem, but I love all things Apple. And just to show you uh, a little bit about my uh, <clears throat> uh, obsession, after Christmas... I went out and I bought the brand new Apple TV. Now, Apple TV, this is my attempt to do my diligence to, to try to cut the cable. See, I'm working this out. So I'm trying to cut cost on my cable bill, so I go out and I buy this, this device. I know some of you are already thinking, why don't you buy something else? But it's okay. It's Apple. It's the best that there is. And so one of the things that this Apple TV has is there's this new feature is where there's a screensaver that it switches to so that you know you won't burn a hole in your TV, and it switches to this screensaver uh, if you're inactive. And most of the scenes that this new television have are overhead shots that are done by drones. And so this drone is flying overhead, whether it be the beach or wherever. And really, it's so cool because it's something that most of us have never seen before because drones are somewhat of a, a new kind of technology. And so if you really think drones are really changing the way that we view a lot of things because it's almost like you're like an eagle flying overhead and seeing these beautiful landscapes giving us all these vantage points and vistas that many of us have never been able to see this really is a bird's eye view and so one of the favorite shots that i have uh, on my apple tv is one that you see behind you right now it's this overhead drone shot, or maybe it's a helicopter, but let's just play it's a drone just in case. I know some of you are arguing with me. That's okay. There's a shot of the Great Wall of China. And so for about five minutes, this drone takes you to parts of the Great Wall of China that are inaccessible today. And really, if you look at that, I think they will agree together that there really are some really breathtaking images that happen. Anyone ever been to the Great Wall of China? Anyone here? Anyone want to go to the Great Wall of China if you had a chance? Yeah, I'd love to go. Well, hey, we sort of get a chance to go today to see something that even if we were there, we wouldn't be able to see what we're seeing today. And let me tell you, I've been doing a little research since this thing shows up, pops up on my TV. I've been doing a little research about the Great Wall of China, and the Great Wall of China is truly a fascinating thing. Did you know that it stretches across portions of China over 13,000 miles 13,000 miles now the archaeologists used to say that it was 5,000 miles but they've unearthed some more sections and they figured out that when this thing was completed 
it was over 13,000 miles of a wall. It took 2,000 years to complete the wall. And today, if we were to go, if we wanted to walk, we could walk about about a few thousand miles. It would take us, a few, you know, I don't know how long. It would take us a long time to walk. Some would be faster than others probably. Today, there's over 5,000 miles still intact of this great wall of China. Now, I do all that just simply to try my diligence as your pastor to open our minds to be engaging with the Scripture. And so today, I want us to look at the Beatitudes. And I want us to look at a text this morning that's before us. It's truly magnificent. It's more magnificent than the Great Wall of China. It's more magnificent than the tallest red oak tree or whatever you like. This passage of Scripture today has stood for nearly 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years, this passage has stood to show men the way to the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I want us to look at the Beatitudes and Specifically, as we take our Bibles and we dig into this text, I want us to look at the first of the Beatitudes. And I really agree with an old-timey preacher. And when I say old-timey, I mean this guy has been dust a long time. John Chrysostom, he's an old church guy. John Chrysostom, he said that the Beatitudes are a golden chain linked together, link by link. And so this chain links together to give us a picture of this blessed life that Christ has called us to. And so today, we get the privilege of coming together and looking at this first link in this beautiful chain as the Lord lays out before us today this truth. Listen to it. Read it. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me today? Father, who is capable for such things? I pray that as we even think about such truths in Your Word, that we have both a feeling of excitement as well as this feeling of being overwhelmed at how majestic You are. So Father, we pray as we come to this moment during our service, entrusting ourselves, laying ourselves bare before You, asking You, Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. So here we are today standing at the first of the Beatitudes. And really, this is the first. And I believe that as we're looking at this list of Beatitudes, this one comes first, and it's not haphazard. I hope that you see that Jesus, when he's sitting on the mountain teaching to the people, he's just not throwing out things and hoping that they land. Listen. I do that sometimes as a preacher. I am fallible, right? He is infallible. Everything that he throws out is purposeful. It lands, it hits the mark. And we learned about that a couple of weeks ago. Remember, this is the Word of God. It goes forth, accomplishing whatever purpose God has for it. And so here Jesus is listing these blessed statements, these beatitudes, and he's doing so with purpose. It's not as if these things are just randomly strung together. No one starts, I don't believe, I'm not a crocheter, but you don't start crocheting something and say, well, we'll figure out where this goes. Usually you have a purpose in everything, unless 
I'm wrong, then there again, like I said, I'm, I'm fallible. But usually when you start out to make something, you have a purpose in mind. What I'm trying to communicate is these statements are not just simply randomly selected. Jesus has purposefully set this before us today to tell us about this life of blessedness, about this life that God has come to call us to. Now, I will never get over this fact, and I hope that you don't ever get over the good news that we have before us today. Here comes the King of Heaven. Here comes, as Matthew has told us in chapter 4, this great light that has come shining on a people that were dwelling in deep darkness. And the first thing that He says is not a word of judgment, not a word of condemnation. first thing that He says is, this is the way to blessedness. This is the way to be happy in Jesus. This is the way to have life. He says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And weaves these beautiful, blessed statements together to reveal to us what life in His kingdom looks like. Listen, Jesus has come. And He's come for a purpose. Jesus has come to save. Look at this real quickly. Matthew has summed up the ministry of Jesus for us in chapter 4 and verse 23. Look at what it says. Right before we have Matthew 5, 3, there's something before it. Well, one of those things that's before it is 4.23. Listen to what it says. This is a summary of the entire message of Jesus. I love this. And He went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. And then look at this. I love this phrase right here in verse 24. His fame spread throughout all of Syria. They brought Him all those who were sick, all those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And then look at this next phrase. I love this. And He healed them. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come into our world that has been ruined and wrecked by the fall. He's come into this world that has been riddled with brokenness, riddled with sin, riddled with depression and disease and anxiety and all of these things. And He has come to bring healing. This is what Malachi says. It says, The Son, S-U-N, of righteousness has risen and He has risen with healing in His wings. I love the way John sums up the message of Jesus in John chapter 3. Listen to what it says. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would never perish but have eternal life. Now we know that, right? We, we all know that verse. Listen to what comes next. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in Him, you're condemned already. Because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so, in keeping with the whole ministry of Jesus, He starts by telling us the way to blessedness. The way to have a blessed life. He tells us that this is the life that He is calling us to. He tells us something specific. And the first thing that He tells us is that the poor in spirit are those who are blessed. He tells us that the poor in spirit are the ones to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. And so, then if that's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to, then that begs a question for us as we read this verse. 
not in necessarily isolation, but we take it and we look at how it's fitting in the whole life and ministry of Jesus, that begs the question, if poor in spirit is the way to the kingdom, then what on earth does it mean to be poor in spirit? And so this morning, I want us together from this passage to learn three truths about the poor in spirit. And I encourage you, if you're taking notes, really write them down, listen closely, because I want us to get this together. Number one this morning, the poor in spirit. And all of these are going to begin with the poor in spirit. So you can just write it once and then do the ditto marks. It makes your life easy and mine easy. The poor in spirit, number one, are empty vessels preparing to be filled. Empty vessels preparing, expecting, hoping, longing to be filled. So what in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit? And so there's been all kind of different ideas about what it means to be poor in spirit. Is poor in spirit, does it have something to do with you know, physical poverty? We're talking about people who are poor. Or individuals that lack materialism. Whether they don't have physical wealth or whatever. Is that what it means to be spiritually poor? Is it some physical poverty? And see, some have thought that this is the way. And so what they've done is they've renounced anything materialism. They've just taken their materialism and said we don't need it. We don't need, you know, God will provide. They live this kind of life. And so what do they do in the past? They have took this verse and they've joined monasteries in an effort to get closer with God. But sometimes if we're not careful, those of us who know that we can be real proud of what we do have as well as what we don't have, right? Well, I, at least I'm not like that guy. That guy's got an Apple Watch, an Apple TV, an Apple car, and all this stuff. At least I'm not like him. You can pride yourself in what you don't have. Is that what the attitude that it means to be poor in spirit? And see, I think that a man can have renounced all of his materialism, be very proud of his accomplishments, and he still can miss what it means to be poor in spirit. And so if we're going to learn, you know, it's like the guy who prides himself in his humility. You've missed the point. You're not a humble person. So if we're going to learn what it means to be poor in spirit, there's really one place that we should go and look. And guess where that is? The Bible. Now, one of the things that I hope that we're learning together as we've been together a, a few years now is I'm really hoping that you are getting and grasping to learn the language of the Bible. When the Bible says language like poor, the first place that we should think is not out yonder somewhere about the hobo that you know who's poor, but we should think about what the Bible means when it uses this language of poor, of poverty. What does the Bible mean when it uses this language? And so this is what Jesus is doing. He is calling us because we believe in one testament, one story, not just old and new, but we believe the Old Testament, the New Testament, is all telling one story about how God is redeeming the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to learn what it means to be poor, let's learn the language of the Bible together. So I'm not going to read the passage of the Scripture. They're going to be noted up there for you on the screen. You can write these down. So listen to what Zephaniah Chapter 3 and verse 12, it tells us that the poor are those who have no refuge but God. The idea of poor in spirit, if you read the Psalms, you'll find out that it's everywhere in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 34 and verse 6 tells us that one who is poor in spirit is destitute and they are in great need. And so we see as a result of this all throughout the Psalms, especially in Psalm 34, this one who is destitute, who is poor, he realizes his poverty and so he cries out to God. 
And then the good part of the story is not just that he sees his need, but that there is a God in heaven who has his ears bent, ready to hear the cry, ready to respond of the one who is despondent with his own salvation. In Isaiah chapter 41, in verses 17 and 18, God tells us that He Himself would be the supply of all that the poor in spirit ever need. So it's not that they need food or clothing or anything like that. What the poor in spirit really desire and need are nothing short of who God is and what He can provide. I love Isaiah because Isaiah again says in the last chapter in chapter 66, in verse 1 and 2, it's so you should really write that one down because it says that it's the poor in spirit to whom God looks. It's the poor in spirit to whom are the true blessed ones. And so this is the message that Christ has come proclaiming. Christ has come proclaiming Isaiah chapter 61. Listen to what it says. Christ has come to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Look at this. Look at this. this is so good. He has anointed me to do what? Bring good news to who? The poor. Now, look. Let's try that again. Some of you were... I got you at that moment. Alright. So, what has He called us to do? To bring good news to who? The poor. Listen to what else it says. It says that He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now don't miss this. Don't miss this. The message of Christ is good news to the poor. The message of Christ is good news to the poor. Those who are not aware of their poverty miss the message. Now listen, it's not as if there's one person who's poor and there's one person who's not poor. Everyone's poor. See, not everyone realizes how poor they are. Everyone's poor. And those who realize their poverty, they're the ones who Christ says, this is the ones I am proclaiming to. They are the ones who realize that this is good news. And see, the reason that this is important is because it's in Christ's own day when He is proclaiming this message He's proclaiming this message with people who are, they're not aware of how poor they are. Just like our day, there are people who really don't realize their need for Jesus. Well, Jesus faced this all through His ministry. We could read about it in John, but just for our take, we'll read about it in Matthew chapter 3. You remember John the Baptist, this preacher who was preparing the way of the Lord? He was preaching one day, and he had an exchange with a couple of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, he says this, Don't presume to say to yourselves. He's preaching to this Pharisees and Sadducees, keepers of the law. He says, Don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. And so Jesus comes in John, speaks to the same group of people, and these people say, what are you talking about, Jesus? We've never been enslaved. We've never been in poverty. It's like they totally forgot about the Exodus and Pharaoh and all that. They say, we've never been captive by anyone. Jesus goes on and says later, and He paints the portrait plainly, and He says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So this idea of those who are impoverished, Jesus came to a people who did not recognize how deep 
they were in need. These people were greatly in need. And what were they doing? They were standing on the foundation of their own righteousness, thinking that it was enough to accomplish what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus comes, and the first thing that He says to level our hearts, to, to make sure that we are on the same page, is He comes in and says that the message, the whole point of the kingdom is coming to the end of yourself. Recognizing your great need. And then, here's the good point. Not just recognizing your great need, but then lifting up your head and seeing that there is a great God who is greater than the greatest need that you have. And He can abundantly supply every need that you have. And every need that you have is summed up in Him. He is greater. He is better. And it's those who realize and come to the end of themselves, it's those who the Bible says to them belong kingdom of heaven. Now, I think that as I've said earlier, there is a definite order to these blessed statements. This one that we have before us today, blessed are the poor in spirit, listen carefully, is the key that unlocks all the rest. This is the one that's standing at the front of the house of blessedness. This is the gatekeeper of all the rest and if you look close, and we'll do this next week and the weeks to follow, every other statement, follow this statement. Every other characteristic that's found, blessed are this, blessed are these descriptors, follow this statement. This one, listen carefully, this one, blessed are the poor in spirit, this one is an emptying, while all the others are a filling. Now pay special attention to this next phrase. You cannot be full unless you're first emptied. This is a paramount gospel foundational truth. You cannot be full unless you're first emptied. Now we sing about it in our hymn books. We sing about it. Come you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And then the next thing, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. But see, emptying comes before filling. Before you realize how beautiful Jesus is, you have to look at yourself in light of who He is. And let me just say this. You may have a very high view of yourself, but listen, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. The way to the kingdom is to renounce any claim that you may have on your life, your own good, your own righteousness, and give it all to Jesus. All to Jesus. We sing another one. I surrender all to Him. I Freely give. And who is it that's calling us to Himself? It's not just anybody. It's Jesus. This is why we have to labor as a church to make sure that we know who it is and what it is that we're calling men to do. If we don't get the Gospel right, we have no ambition, no future, no reason to think that men would even dare come to us as I stand behind this pulpit and preach, I'm not calling men to follow me or the church. I'm calling people to follow Jesus. And that's what we're doing. Jesus 
bids men when He calls them. This is what He said, and this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. That's what it is. Die. Die to yourself. I remember this. When I was very early in my ministry, I was very discouraged, very distraught. I remember calling my mentor. I was down. I was out. I was depressed. I was discouraged. You hear all the I, I, I's. Focus is, is an important thing. And I was focusing all my attention on me, myself, and I. And I was ready to have me a little boohoo party. Anyone ever been there? Because you think about how terrible your situation is. And listen carefully. I remember my mentor, I called him down at First Atlanta. And I told him, I said, Scott, I just don't know how much more I can take of this. I said, you know, I realize that I must be pretty prideful because God is, you know, he's, he's humbling me. I don't know how much lower I can go. How much more can I take? And I'll never forget the words that my mentor said to me. I asked him, I said, how much more can I take? He said, until you die. And there's nothing more of you, but it's all of him. Who wants to hear that, right? Nobody. No, just give me the eye watch, Jesus. Give me this. You know, just let my life be easy and simple. No, no. G- the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. But really, listen carefully. It's not just so much a call to come and die. It's to die to yourself. That's, that's half of it. The next thing that He calls you to is when you die, here's the best part of the Gospel. You get to live. You then get to live because your life is not your own. It's His. What does Paul say? He says, glorify God in your body. Why? Because you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul says another way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he says this, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the One who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see the Gospel dynamic? You see this economics of the Kingdom? It is this emptying before the filling. And let me just say this, that this is the stumbling block of the Gospel for the world. The Gospel is both a decreasing and an increasing. The Gospel says that what goes down must come up. That's what the Gospel says. So, in the Kingdom, what goes down must come up. In the Kingdom, in order to be filled, first you have to be poured out. To come to the end of yourself. Bringing with you nothing in your hands to offer Jesus, but simply saying, all to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Saying, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. One of the first ones to recognize Jesus as Savior, if you remember in the, in the Bible story, is an, is an old man. And I love this story. Old man waiting outside the temple named Simeon. And here comes Mary and here comes Joseph bringing Jesus with them. When the old man named Simeon saw Jesus, listen to what he says in Luke. He says, My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. I love the original language. The word for salvation of the Lord is Jesus. God saves. So you know what he said? He looks at Jesus. He said, hey, I've just seen Jesus. No, that didn't translate well, so they translated it in the way that we would understand what he was saying. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Then he says this, it is a salvation that you, O Lord, have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light 
for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people in Israel. And then he says this. Listen to this carefully. Simeon. He says, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Let me read that again. This child is appointed for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel. Fall first, then the rising. The Gospel always condemns before it converts. Conviction always comes before conversion. You must know that you need saving before you can be saved. So remember this, that at the heart of Christianity is a King who came and He gave Himself for our sakes. And how did He give Himself? On a cruel, cruel cross. You see, our need was so great that it took the death of life to undo our greatest need. Our need was so great that it took Jesus dying, becoming low, and then what did He do? He rose again. See the kingdom, what goes down must come up. He died and He rose again from the dead and so that He would be able to be the remedy for what it is that we need. And there is, listen carefully, there is no greater expression of this whole Gospel doctrine that we have called justification by faith alone. There is no greater declaration of that doctrine than blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen. The way that you and I are made right with God has nothing to do with what we do. You have to get this. Take yourself out of the equation. The way that we get right with God has nothing to do with what we do. Listen, the opposite is true. It has everything to do with what He has done to save us. We are empty. Spiritually bankrupt. Nothing to give, but everything to gain. Everything to gain. Now, this is what it means to be poor in spirit. But there are two other truths that I want to give you very quickly about this whole idea of, of blessed are the poor in spirit. Number two this morning. The poor in spirit, not only are they ready to be filled, they come empty ready to be filled, but the poor in spirit are those who have this utmost confidence in God. They are these who have this utmost confidence in God. To be poor in spirit means, listen carefully, that your confidence rests not in yourself, but the confidence rests in God. Can you just think about that point for just a minute? And hear how counter-cultural the cross is. Everyone says, well, make the Gospel relevant. Make the Gospel countercultural. Just preach the Gospel, preacher, and you'll make the Gospel countercultural. Can you hear how counterintuitive that is for the way that the common man thinks? The way that our world tells us to think? How many self-help, self-improvement, self-advancement books and strategies are there? Now listen carefully. Listen. I'm not against self-help books. I'm not against self-help 
strategies. Some of you need a lot of help, right? Some of us, excuse me, some of us need a lot of help. Amen? Yeah, thank you very much. Here's the thing. Foundational truth for all of our needs is we really need one thing. More than anything else, we need Jesus. And that's the message that we have given to us. It's not something that I created. It's not my idea. The Lord knows. It's His. Our message to the world is you need Jesus. Jesus comes in. See, He's the only one qualified to say this because, well, He's Jesus, right? He comes in and He says, you know what you guys need? You need me. And that's why I'm here. That's why I have come. So against the backdrop of all of these self-help strategies, comes this king who says that the way for self-advancement, listen, the way for self-advancement is coming to the end of yourself and wholly trusting in God. Listen carefully to me. This is why I wanted to put this point in here. This doesn't mean that then you become some kind of holy pushover. Right? Woe is me. That's not what it means to be a Christian. A Christian doesn't just say, woe is me. A Christian says, great is the Lord God. Okay? We may begin with, woe is me, but we say, hey, this God chose for whatever reason. Ask me why He loves me. I have no idea, but I am so grateful that He does. Coming to the end of yourself and realizing that there is a God who is greater than you. So, being poor in spirit doesn't mean that you are some holy pushover. What it does mean is that we are people who know that there is one who is infinitely greater than we are. In other words, Christians are those who are not the center of their universe, and they know it. And we're okay not being at the center of our universe. And why is that? Because we know that there's a God in heaven who's greater. We know there's a God in heaven who is the greatest, if we could say it. And so if we live this way, then this really frees us to live a life of adventure for God. If you think about it, if your confidence doesn't rest in you, if your confidence rests in an infinite God, do you see how that frees you then to live the life that God has called you to do? This is what it means. This is why we as Christians are called to be real men. This is why we as Christians are called to be real women. This is why we know what it means to define these terms because Christ is the foundation of our lives. There is a great adventure. There is nothing greater, listen carefully, nothing greater than you and I living our lives totally and wholeheartedly for Jesus. And if there is anyone who should be a confident person, if there's any people who should be a confident people, it is people who are trusting wholeheartedly in God. Listen carefully. When we trust wholeheartedly in God, when we are obeying God, then we cannot fail. The world may think that what we did is a failure, but if we wholly are trusting in God, obeying God, leaving the consequences of our obedience to Him, then you know what? We are not going to fail. You see what this does to us? This frees us up to do anything for the cause of Jesus. This frees us up to be who God calls us to be. Listen, poor in spirit doesn't mean that you have to take your ambition and leave it aside. Well, I wanted to be the President of the United States, but now, you know, I'm, I, I follow Jesus, so I'm not going to be the President. No, no, no. Be the President if you want to be the President. Have all the pomp and circumstance, but in the end of your heart, when you're walking down 
whatever road that was that he was walking down yesterday, and you're seeing all the pomp, just realize that there's someone greater than you. Do it. Live your life. But live the life that Christ has called you to live. Christians are those who are confident people. Christians are those who are ambitious because we're not living for ourselves. We are living for God. Just take, for example, one man who was poor in spirit, who was one of the most ambitious characters in all the Bible, was a man named David. Think about David. David, a man after God's own heart, gave himself to God, and look how God used him. He united the tribes of Israel and established a dynasty. And God said that this dynasty won't ever go away. Be poor in spirit this morning. Know that God is the greatest. And give yourself wholeheartedly to Him to accomplish His will. I love William Carey. He was the father of the modern missions movement. When everyone was saying, don't go to the mission field, William Carey said, I'm going to the mission field. William Carey said this. He was a man who was poor in spirit, who knew that there was one greater than him. And listen to what he said. This is the attitude that we should have. Expect great things from God and then attempt great things for Him. I think oftentimes, and I'm going to preach a message on this one day, we feel like as Christians we have to apologize for being Christians. We don't have to apologize for being Christians. We are those who have our confidence set. We are those who are wholeheartedly trusting in Jesus. And listen, we're not calling men to follow us or our ways. We're calling men to follow Jesus. This is not something that we came up with. This is something that He has called us to do. And listen, the poor in spirit will do this. They will have confidence. They will attempt great things for God because, number three this morning, the poor in spirit of those people who they desire nothing greater than eternity with God. Nothing else in this world will do for those who are poor in spirit because, listen, you have been to the end of yourself. You know that there's nothing that satisfies except for Jesus. Look at the positive side of this verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But then what does Jesus say about it? That's the negative. Or maybe the positive, but you understand in contrast. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I just want to simply ask you this morning, is there anything better than that? When you come to the point of realizing that there is someone greater, someone better than you, let me just tell you this. When you come to the point in realizing how great God is, then I promise you, you will stand at His feet realizing how great He is, looking at His awesome splendor, and you will spend every effort of your life pursuing He who is greater. And the problem, the problem, and it's a problem in your heart, it's a problem in my heart. Most of us, we either don't know this because we're so self-conceited or so self-consumed, or we forget that God is greater. You know who we are this morning? Those of us who are poor in spirit, those of us who are ready to follow Jesus, you know who we are? Those of us who are following Jesus, you know who we are? Listen, here's what the Bible says. We are those whose lives are being prepared to be filled with glory. 
how is it that we're being prepared? Emptying ourselves in order to be filled. Our God is preparing, listen, this is the language of the Bible, our God is preparing new wine to be poured into our wineskins. Jesus is going to say this later, that you can't put new wine into old wineskins. So what do you have to do? You have to replace the skins. The new wine's there. You've got to replace the skin. And that's what we are. We are those who have determined that what's waiting for us when Jesus comes is better than anything that we could ever give our lives to now. So we are these people with this holy ambition. We go here. We go there. We risk our lives. We risk our reputation at work. We risk everything for Jesus because we have determined this. He is greater. He is the best. And our entire lives are about us coming to the end of ourselves and finding that God is greater. A God to whom we bow our knees in devotion. A God to whom we raise our hands in adoration and praise. Listen to C.S. Lewis. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think that we may sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God. Listen. The real test of being in the presence of God is either forgetting about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. And listen to what C.S. Lewis says. It's better to just forget about yourself all together. You see, this is why we do what we do here at Oxford. We sing the Gospel. We preach the Gospel. We pray the Gospel. Every sermon that your pastor preaches is Christ-centered. I begin with Jesus first, and then you, then me. Because it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. We are poor in spirit. Jesus is greater. Old pastor in England named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was right when he said this, if one feels anything in the presence of God except utter poverty of spirit, then it ultimately means that that one has never faced God. So here today, we have our King giving us, as it were, an invitation. And we read on, it says, you're invited to the kingdom of heaven. As we turn it over, we look at the back and we see the requirements for the back. The requirements to be in the kingdom of heaven is you must be poor in spirit. Listen closely to the old hymn. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Then listen to this next phrase. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you wait this morning, and you wait and you say, you know, I'm just going to wait until things are better in my life. Jesus will never accept me as I am. If you tarry till you're better, then the point of the kingdom is you won't ever make it. You'll never come at all. Your invitation today from our Lord is to arise and go 
Jesus. Your invitation today is to be embraced by arms that are able to save. Because we know that in the arms of Jesus, in the arms of our Savior, there's not just one charm. There's not just two or even a thousand. In the arms of our dear Savior, there are tens of thousands of charms. Jesus is greater. Would you pray with me today? Father, we love you. We thank you for being who you are. For calling us to enjoy fellowship with you. So Father, I pray for everyone who's here. Those who think that they are better. And they leave Jesus out of the equation. Would you today let them realize how poor and impoverished they are. Father, would you today call men, women, boys and girls to realize how great you are. We ask these things humbly. In Jesus' name, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.